This episode was brought to you by our Patreon supporters, Amy Swan, Blake Popsk, Greg Bench, Joel Robertson, Jonathan Edge, and Trey Whetstone. Thank you all. Now on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, The Father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty sidekick, Jackson, the son and dad, if you ever ask for a Father's Day cake, I swear I won't hit you over the head with an ashtray. (laughs) (laughs) We are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies we discuss. And this time around, we are looking at the classic 1982 horror anthology penned by Stephen King and directed by George Romero, Creepshow. Tales of horror that will give you the creeps. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Verrill. The most fun you'll ever have being scared. Creep Show, rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. And to do this right, we called in a heavy hitter. Folks, you know him on Twitter, you know him, you love him, Vicious Victor. Victor, how are you? Hello, yes, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. I've been loving it lately, and uh, it's my honor to be here. Thank you so much. No, we're honored to have you. And Victor, before we get going, tell the listeners about your writing and where they can find it. Certainly. Uh, Yeah, I wrote a book two years ago called The Sound of Fear, and um, it is 12 short stories that are framed around the concept of sounds from the beyond. Uh, It's a callback to my first career in audio, in games, TV, and film, and... um, it's gotten uh, it's gotten some good buzz and it, it's available on Amazon and all the usual places. But here's the really cool thing is uh, absolutely free. You can essentially read the book by listening to my readings of the stories in that book on my own podcast. And it's called Inside the Sound of Fear. <laughs> oh, wow. So, I, I didn't even know that. I'm a fan of yours. So, yeah, to so you have a podcast um please tell people i mean they can get it where itunes everywhere everywhere itunes spotify all the usual places um it's uh it's been doing pretty well i think we're about halfway through the book right now and um this is uh this is all due to my good friend and my producer josh ellis um so every episode is is me reading one of the stories from the book and uh and then josh uh interviews me uh, for a short period thereafter you know talking about my uh inspirations and stuff for each story so that's what the podcast is that is awesome and you have a radio voice if i may say so victor Ooh, so that you. yeah that's incredible unlike me even though the professions i've gone in have all required me speaking um as a pastor and attorney i have a special place in eternity no matter where i end up but anyway <laughs> um yeah so you know but we want people to buy the book um and so go to Amazon, get the book. And so, you know, do you have any plans? I mean, I hope, Victor, that when this pandemic is over, mm. uh, you can go out and do some promotions, that kind mm. of stuff. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, of course. I I used to attend this quarterly event um, here in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle, uh, where I live, uh, called Noir at the Bar, uh, and um, uh, that's where I yeah I kind of started reading my work there and met a few people in the community, and uh, yeah, I guess that's sort of the other half of my social circle nowadays um the the first half being you guys you know uh starting with the uh, horror movie podcast i think um you know yeah. Uh, uh yeah your your uh comments on on their on their page really got me plugged into the horror community and that was right after i you know left everything behind in la seven years ago and moved up to seattle uh and i knew almost nobody here uh, I was starting a brand new career, you know, uh, everything was just like starting from zero again. And you guys really, really helped um, make me feel not completely two sheets to the wind, you know. Um, so I really wow. appreciate that. Wow. that Well, that's fantastic. Of course, you've been on Land of the Creeps. You've been on Phantom Galaxy. You've been on... You know, you've been on a number of podcasts, and so so glad to hear that you have your own podcast because I didn't know that. I'm going to immediately subscribe and and go to that. But everybody buy uh, Victor's book. Now you pick this film. Let's jump into it. Creep Show. Um, the IMDb synopsis for Creep Show reads: an anthology which tells five terrifying tales inspired by the EC horror comic books of the 1950s. Uh, that most may be the most generic <laughs> synopsis <laughs> ever, uh, but I'll, I, I'll at least say that maybe the person who wrote it at IMDb actually watched the movie. Um, Victor, when did you first see Creepshow? Yeah, I saw Creepshow the year it came out. Um, I think it was 1982, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I believe it was probably late in the year because I went with a school friend, a junior high school friend, and we went to, uh, this was pretty revolutionary at the time, we went to see an R-rated movie, and I think we were 14, maybe, at the time. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we went to this um, theater in Sherman Oaks and saw Creepshow, and it was just absolutely perfect for us. And we had the greatest time. I was already a Stephen King fan. I was already a George Romero fan. So um, this was just, uh, <laughs> no pun intended, icing on the cake. I, I just uh, absolutely <laughs> loved it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was my first Creepshow experience. Wasn't at the Sherman Oaks Galleria? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I love that place. Absolutely love that place. Yeah. Uh, used to eat lunch there every day when I went to uh, Stratford Prep in the Valley before I got kicked out. But anyway, moving on. Um, <laughs> Jackson, when did you first see Creepshow? I was kind of thrown for a loop because I thought I had seen this movie. I went my entire life thinking I had seen this movie. Turns out I hadn't seen it all the way through uh, because I knew parts of it. And I even knew, like, the last segment, but I didn't know the first one. So it's it's really weird. I, I feel like I maybe have just seen clips from it. And I had seen Creepshow 2, definitely. So I think that's 
that's why I was confused. This is my first time seeing it all the way through for this podcast. And I wow. was pleasantly surprised because, um, you know, I think it is a, a step up from Creepshow 2. And Tom Atkins is in this movie, a, a national treasure, beloved in the, in the <laughs> horror community. So um, although he is stashless, which is a bit of a, a tragedy. No, no mustache in this movie. <laughs> oh, we have to talk about that. Uh, I saw this on cable uh, back in the mid 80s sometime. Um, as I said, this is uh, an anthology. We begin with a wraparound story involving a very young Joe Hill, a.k.a. Joe King, Stephen King's son, as a kid whose father, as you said, Jackson, a mustacheless Tom Adkins, is upset that his son is reading a horror comic, even though he's reading something else. But anyway, um, Victor, beginning with you, what do you think of the wraparound and should Tom Atkins ever appear without facial hair? <laughs> that is definitely the scariest thing about this movie, uh, Tom <laughs> Atkins' upper lip. Um, but, uh, you know, it's still Tom Atkins. Uh, and um, to answer your question, I, I think, um, yeah, a good wraparound story is probably what separates the good anthology movies from the average and bad anthology movies. So I, I think that they really nailed it in um, Creepshow. Uh, it's interesting. I, I've seen it like three or four times and uh, only the latest time that I saw it, did I really put it together that um, the, the the importance of the wraparound story about how the relationship with an abusive authority figure is sort of a through line. Um, through the movie. I, I guess I was oh, you're just right. I didn't think about that. You're right. Yeah. Uh, so, so it, it is a theme that's established in the, um, you know, in the, in the framing device that, you know, the, the opening story and, and uh, it's carried through the thing. And I don't think really much of the other creep show sequels um, did that uh, if memory serves, but maybe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, you're right. So, Jackson, what did you think of the wraparound story? And the mustacheless well, Tom Atkins. Yeah, well, I've already voiced my discontent with, with Tom Atkins being stashless. But, um, you know, Joe Hill as a child actor, not the most legendary actor in the world, but hey, it's it's Joe Hill. It's kind of fun to see him there. Uh, although I think it, it might have been better if they'd gotten Henry Thomas from E.T., although that year he was kind of an unknown until E.T. came out earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so so maybe, maybe not. But um, I think he would have elevated it a little bit. I think that would have been fun, Henry Thomas and uh, Tom Atkins. But yeah, I, I definitely get that. Um, and it definitely, with the first segment at least, with the paternal, you know, kind of familial trauma, that is a theme for sure. Uh, and it, it kind of ties the whole thing together with how um, Joe Hill is reading these out of rebellion and kind of relates to the characters in these in these creep show stories. So that's something I hadn't thought about before. And I actually, you know, the beginning I think is a little rocky. I like that we see the creep outside the window, but the ending of the wraparound story, I think it really ties it all together. And I love the way it ends with a voodoo doll, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. <laughs> Absolutely. And by the way, just so we're clear, as a father, Jackson, I never discouraged you from reading graphic novels. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, I think you, you actually encouraged me to read graphic novels because this books rot your brain, you know, if it, does, if it doesn't have pictures, you know. <laughs> now, no, I, I remember buying, do you remember me buying you the Marvel 
like origin like graphic novels and on the incredible hulk and x-men and so forth yeah we would drive like an hour and a half to go to the comic book store all the time that that was yeah those were great and um yeah and you you have uh you introduced me to them without shoving them down my throat so i think that's the right way to do it because if you had shoved them down my throat i would have been like that's not cool you know parents like comic books that's lame (laughs) right Oh, no, 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 no. I, I encouraged your rebellion. So um, we get to the next segment is Father's Day with a young Ed Harris, um, Carrie Nye, a.k.a. the late ex-Mrs. Dick Cavett, um, the great Vivica Lynn Fors as Bedelia. People will remember her from Stargate and The Sure Thing and dozens of other projects. John Lormer as the father, who people will know from the Boogans and the original Twilight Zone um, episode. So I I will get to what I think is the most burning debate um, in a second, which mm-hmm. concerns Ed Harris's dancing. <laughs> but before that, thoughts on Father's Day. Victor, you first. Yeah. Um, OK, so. In uh, in short story collections um, or anthologies, uh, there uh, there is a formula, and I think that this movie follows that formula, and um, it's to have sort of the most sensational movie right up front, or the sensational story right up front to you know wet the viewer's appetite. And then the best story last um, to to sort of when you close the book or or you know click off the movie to have the the viewer you know sort of have a, a feeling of wow that was a really good collection you know so I think that they followed that in this one and um, the first story is very strong uh, I. I've never, I actually, I have never disliked any of the segments in Creepshow, which is unusual for uh, an anthology mm. movie. But um, yeah, I think it's great. Uh, it definitely establishes the tone of, uh, what, how should I put it? Like, um, you know, sort of selfish people getting their comeuppance. Um, right. So yeah, you're, you're, you're kind of introduced to this uh, family of rich types and uh, you're sort of going, God, I'm, am I supposed to like these people? Like, they're really, right. yeah. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, Ed Harris dancing. And so it's just like this this menagerie of, uh, you know, distasteful uh, <laughs> things that we're exposed to. And then it sort of goes starts going deeper. Like, you know, oh, you know, the reason they're this way is because the father was, uh, you know, so mean and cruel to them. Uh, and then, of course, everybody sort of gets their uh, their due in this movie. So, yeah, I liked it. Absolutely. Jackson? Yeah, I like uh, I like Father's Day as well, although I think it is actually my least favorite of the segments. I still like it. And, and one of the reasons really? I like it is, yeah, and well, so hear me out, okay? 
it's it I, is I it is the most sensational the last one is my least favorite actually really that that might be my favorite well, but we'll talk about it so okay. a couple of things i liked about the first segment i do like the family and how awful they are they kind of i was talking to you earlier dad about uh, me re-watching arrested development and they kind of remind me of the blues from arrested development where they're all kind of like stuck up mm-hmm. and uh they all hate each other's guts but they put up with each other um so yeah i i i, I like that i like the family you know ed harris is doing his dance that's great um he doesn't have a lot to do in this movie uh he has a really cool death i guess but um you know ed harris he could have acted up a storm given the chance um i also like how there's a lot of neon lighting in this one more so than the others i would say maybe not Mm. but that's the first time i noticed it i think that uh this movie uses more neon lighting than fear and loathing in in las vegas and that's Mm. saying something because uh (laughs) but i mean like every single time there's a horror scene there's there's neon and i wish more movies did that because it definitely makes it more visually interesting i think if we had just gotten a guy getting crushed by a headstone and it would have been all gray you would have been like yeah okay but when Mm -hmm. you add in some blues and reds then then you're like "Ooh, that was awesome um that said I, it doesn't really all tie together for me. I think I like the past su- stuff with the the demanding um, patriarch slamming his cane onto the the chair. I really like that. I like the death. How he gets hit over the head with the ashtray. I find that really entertaining. Um, but uh, I, I don't know the the modern stuff, like the the stuff set in the present, just doesn't tie all together for me. That said, I do like the way it ends with the birthday cake. Ooh, you don't like? Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Let me hear why. Why doesn't it tie together? I don't know. It just doesn't. It's not as satisfying to me narratively. Like, like compared to, um, and I, and I have the same complaint about the second short, where it feels like there's one really really strong element, and then the rest are just kind of like not up to that level. With this one, I feel like the visuals are really good, and I like the backstory, but it just doesn't have as many like hooks as I would like it to. And with the te- the next one, the Ted Danson one, I think it's like. The buried in the sand stuff that's really really strong and it makes me feel really uncomfortable but then the zombie stuff isn't up to that same level of of excellence um so or that's the third one actually just thought about that but um yeah no, it's it, it a just doesn't one. it's a second one you're right oh okay it just doesn't tie together you know as much as i would like it to that said it is really sensational and and eye-catching so i it does work as the first one i don't know where else i would put it um but i think it actually builds in quality as it goes along well let's cut to the chase here what every listener really wants to hear who is the better dancer ed harris or crispin glover so (laughs) victor who is the better dancer Ed Harris in this or Crispin Glover in Friday 13th for the final chapter. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to say uh, Ed Harris is the more memorable dancer. Wow. Controversial. There you go. I like it. I like it. Jackson? I think that Ed Harris, you know, technically is the better dancer, but Crispin Glover is more memorable than me. And he lasts longer. Uh, you know, that that's probably because he's in a feature-length movie and not just a segment of a anthology. But, uh, you know, it's got to count for something, right? Yeah. Yeah, I got to I got to go with Ed Harris. I think Ed Harris's dance is is underrated. I really think that his dance is underrated. So, um plus, of course, you know, Crispin Glover disappeared after his da- David Letterman appearance and Ed Harris continued on, so you have that. Um Mm-hmm. 
we come to the next segment that is probably the most quoted segment, uh, the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill with a, and I'm putting air quotes on this, performance by Stephen King. Mm. Um, <laughs> Victor, thoughts on the lonesome death of Jody Verrill? Yeah, so, you know, sometimes... Uh... <laughs> When somebody produces and writes a movie, he gets to be in the movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that if uh, yeah, I think I, I think that Stephen King may have appeared in uh, Night Riders, you know, Romero's previous movie to this <laughs> before. Oh, uh, I didn't remember that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, briefly, briefly, but um, yeah, obviously the, those two guys are buddies, and. Um, right. You know, uh, it made sense to have Stephen King in this because, you know, it's sort of comic book style, like two dimensional performances, uh, I guess, encouraged. And it, it is. And he does carry the segment in, a, you know, an entertaining way. Um, but uh, I I love this segment. Oops, sorry. Um, That's right. I, uh, I love this segment because. It was uh, sort of in the style of H.P. Lovecraft's Color Out of Space. Um, and uh, there is a, I don't know, a sub-genre, I guess, of horror where you take uh, some innocent people, or a person in this case, and some cosmic horrific thing just lands in their backyard and they are screwed. Like, they, they get to... Um, right you know, deal with uh, Job-like levels of of horror after horror uh, in, in increasing variety, right. and there's nothing they can do, and and that's it. Uh, but that's basically what happens in Color Out of Space uh, with, the, with the family, uh, and that's what happens to Stephen King's character, Jordy, in this segment. Um, and uh, it ends on sort of a sad note, um, but uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys noticed. There is... Uh, a sort of a dark uh, sense of humor about it in in how kind of silly Stephen King's character is, uh, and also I think the uh, the theme to how green is my valley is playing on the TV. <laughs> oh, I did not notice that. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I was my my first career as a music supervisor, so I tend to notice you know <laughs> licensed music and clips. Oh. I should have noticed that. No, I, I didn't. And so that's that's fantastic. Yeah. I, and I, I, I love those kind of endings where it's like uh, the end question mark, because, you know, it's still growing. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> oh, yeah. Jackson, what about you, buddy? I loved it. I, I loved the short. And, and you know, Stephen King's acting, it's not as bad as everybody says it is. I think he's actually, you know, he's playing the part well. This is the part Well, that... okay, let me push back on that. Okay, go uh, ahead. I think he's terrible. Uh, now, <laughs> all right, all right. Now, now, fair, now, you have, to, to, you have fair, to tell me something. To be fair, George Romero told him to play it like Wile E. Coyote, according right, to what I right. saw. He's that... a cartoon character. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, and can we can we all agree that he's better in this than in Maximum Overdrive? I have uh, not I have not seen Maximum Overdrive. Oh really? Yep. Oh, we might have to do that now. <laughs> oh, you're gonna have to be back after you watch Maximum Overdrive. Um, but that is a, a buddy of mine's favorite bad movie, and in fact, the truck from 
Maximum Overdrive, the uh, Green Goblin, actually is 30 minutes from my house. It's, yeah, the guy who owns it, he uh, maintains that he's 30 minutes from my house. Jackson, how many times have we tried to see that thing? Every time we've passed it, I've been disappointed because you've bragged to me about seeing it, and I've never seen it. And, oh, and it, now it I'm, was I'm behind skewing. me on the on the on the highway. It followed me. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be freaky. Yeah. And and, and here's the thing. Uh, you know, I, I I his Stephen King in this movie, right? He had less involvement, so I think that's why his performance was better. Honestly, mm-hmm. he had less involvement in this than in Maximum Overdrive. In that movie, he was just doing whatever. Was that his performance? He was the well, guy who's getting Maximum hit in the nuts Overdrive, by the vending machine. He, was, he doesn't even remember making it. So yeah, that's true. Of, if you've never done cocaine before, just watch Maximum Overdrive. That that'll it'll serve the same purpose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, I like Jordy, and uh, and I like his little his little um, imagination like moments where he's imagining what will happen. These social interactions, uh, you know, the broken meteor. I wouldn't give you two cents for this. I I like those, and he does kind of have a tragic and uh, black comedy kind of end, and uh, I, I like it. It is it does remind me a lot of Color Out of Space. It also reminds me, and I I don't know. This is probably going to be lost on a lot of our listeners, but Fallout New Vegas has a um an area called Vault Twenty Two, which is kind of maybe based on this. I feel like it's about mm. it's a a Fallout shelter that was invaded by this like um spore thing no that grew green everywhere about, that's right. well it's it's it reminded me of this basically and uh yeah i liked it i, I kind of liked how it, it's it's morbid it's it's funny but it's also really tragic and you, and you feel for jordy by the end especially as he takes his life which is played kind of for laughs i mean he's like mm. oh, you have to have this luck one last time and it's like a running joke sort of but it, it's sad i feel bad for jordy and uh i wish he would have gotten 200 dollars for that meteor instead of it turning him into a giant moss man <laughs> <laughs> oh all right so the next segment is something to tide you over with leslie nielsen he of the ever-present fart machine and Ted Danson, uh, the same year, I think, Cheers premiered, I think. And Galen Ross from Dawn of the Dead. What did you think of this segment, gents? Victor, you first. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I love this. I love this, too. I, I, I don't remember if Airplane came out before Creepshow or not. Before. It, yeah, a couple years before, yeah. Okay, so I, I was already ready for Leslie Nielsen's comedy uh, characters, and he kind of plays that up, you know, the, the straight man um, in, you know, sort of doing comedic stuff, except obviously it's done with a very uh, knife-twisty sense of humor in Creepshow. Um, but uh, the obviously this was a, a segment that Stephen King wrote for the movie because it's so current with the video technology at the the bleeding mm. edge, <laughs> right? Uh, which is laughable today, but um, at the time it was pretty pretty cool. It was like, oh yeah, you can videotape. You know, everybody can film stuff now. You know, it's sort of that idea um, that I'm sure. Uh, you know, uh, Romero loved as, you know, sort of a guerrilla filmmaker his his whole career. But but anyway, um, yeah, it's uh, again, the authority figure is the uh, the wronged husband um, who takes things too far and, you know, catches his 
uh, wife and uh, her affair and um, punishes them for their acts. Uh, and then uh, the tables turn uh, <laughs> upon this guy. So, yeah. yeah. Which was um, when I was reading up on the trivia and watching the extras, Ted Danson said that he was really concerned. He had a young daughter at the time and he was really concerned that, you know, he didn't want her to see him in the zombie makeup. And but somehow she snuck through and she walks up and she looks at him and she goes, oh, hi, dad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No big deal. So, Jackson, what did you think of something to tide you over? I, I liked it. And I like I said before, I think the first half is is stronger than the, the ending. Um, you know, drowning is one of my biggest fears. I think that'd be the worst way to die for me. And uh, I'm a so little. So why do you go in the ocean? I well, you know, you got to make sacrifices to have fun. In no, you don't. No. <laughs> I, I think you do. And and uh, and, you know, there may be sharks out there, but, you know, I there risk. are sharks out there. They're not. <laughs> Are there sharks out there? There are man-eating dinosaurs out mm-hmm. there. Stay mm-hmm. out of there. Right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, drowning, again, biggest one of my biggest fears. I'm a little claustrophobic, maybe not as much as some, but uh, drowning while trapped up to my neck in sand, I think would just about be the worst thing that could happen to me. Uh, I think I would just pass out and drown peacefully, probably, because I would, I would get so, I would hyperventilate so much, I'd just pass out and die without even knowing it. But, uh, you know, it would still be scary for the time I was awake. And um, I think the two performances are are fantastic. Obviously, they're, they're two um, really great actors. But, uh, yeah, like I said, the, the zombie part just doesn't work as well for me. It doesn't it doesn't it's not as satisfying, maybe, as um, the beginning part. And and I think part of that is Ted Danson is just kind of a like a brainless zombie, not necessarily brainless. I guess he has an agenda. But you miss a little bit of that, like that uh leading man charisma oh, when he's just I like a lumbering zombie you don't like it no i do i just uh, not as a zombie you know what i mean like I, I i think it would have been a little bit more satisfying if he had been if if the ending had been a little bit more like less just him lumbering up and uh and you know being all zombie-ish and this is just me you know I, this is my first time seeing it in preparation for this episode so yeah these are just my my first thoughts i haven't really had time to think about them or or word them any better but um these these first couple shorts it's just i like them a lot and there are parts of them that i really love there's just like something that's not quite there it's not quite as satisfying um and that's how i feel about the ending of this one where although i will say the part about the the tv on the beach and being buried up to your your head in the sand that kind of reminds me of the ending of that eli roth movie knock knock where they put the phone in front of keanu reeves when he's buried in the yard and i wonder (laughs) if that was a reference to this i didn't get that until now but i wonder if that was a reference to this creep show segment yeah could have been could have been uh victor any retort um, yeah, just only that I have read somewhere uh, a, a, that the original ending for Something to Tide You Over segment was sort of a, an Edgar Allan Poe reference of, I believe it's the Black Cat, where mm-hmm. um, the police show up at uh, Leslie Nielsen's house and he's like, oh yeah, you know, those people that disappeared, they were cheating on me. And and he goes to show the cops the video and instead he plays the video by accident of him oh. drowning them. And they and then they're like, yep, you're going away. 
<laughs> and he's just like, oh, yeah, no. that, that would have been awesome. Yeah, that that would have been cool. I would have preferred that. We would have lost uh, that like stinger and, and the zombie makeup, which is cool. And I like the neon lighting and the, how they've got like the green screen backdrops behind them to make it look like a comic panel. I really like that. Yeah. But I think that would have been a little bit more satisfying, a little bit more intelligent. And because because I think this short is intelligent. You know, it feels like a Stephen King book, like you're reading a Stephen King book. And this is something that a Stephen King character would find themselves in. It reminds me a little bit of Gerald's game, uh, Ted Danson's situation, him being stuck in the sand waiting for his death. That kind of reminds me of the lady strapped to the bed. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, you know, yeah, I think that ending would have been more satisfying and that, that would have made this a perfect segment for me. Mm. Okay. All right. So next up, my favorite, The Crate, featuring Hal Holbrook, who we just lost at the age of 95. God bless him. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners will know him from The Fog and other things, uh, Magnum Force, and Adrian Barbeau, who took the role after her ex husband, John Carpenter, told her to do it. And so, The Crate. Victor, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, well, this this is a great time to mention what a you know a Rosetta Stone of the horror makers of the time this movie is because of the the John Carpenter Stephen King George Romero connection really comes together in this segment. Like uh, like you just said, yeah, Hal Holbrook's in it, who was famously the. <laughs> the the most professional actor that Carpenter had yet directed when he did The Fog and it right. intimidated him. <laughs> right. Um, and Adrian Barbeau, his uh, you know wife, I, I, maybe at the time, um, yep. was it was you know in it. Um, and um, and there's also a, a the on the crate itself. There's like an Arctic expedition note on it, and I think the thing came out earlier <laughs> that year. Yep. So that's definitely them riffing off each other. Um, which um, which is great. Like you know, all, all the all the short story writers that uh, Stephen King admired growing up, uh, you know, uh, you know Lovecraft especially. Same thing. Like uh, you know, Lovecraft had his buddies, and he would they would you know, ship their stories around to each other and and set story you know write stories in each other's universes and stuff like that. Um, and that's kind of what they're doing in Creepshow here. And um, yeah, it, I think it's. It's the longest segment. It's probably the segment that King and Romero liked the best, um, yeah. and and it is great. Uh, it, the the eyes of the creature in the crate is are super memorable. It's it's got great effects, uh, great practical effects in it with the um, the creature. We don't. <laughs> I guess it's a it's a Tasmanian devil, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a some kind of stocky, powerful creature with a huge mouth um, that uh, has survived inside this crate in the <laughs> in the university archaeology department uh, for years, and uh, it breaks loose. <laughs> oh, it's awesome! Fluffy, of course, as as Fluffy. George Romero referred to it. So, Jackson, what did you think of the crate? I love the crate. And yeah, I definitely agree with what Victor was saying. This this does feel like Romero and King's favorite. It feels like the feature presentation because it fe- it's got the biggest scale. It's got the two parallel sort of storylines that intersect near the end. Uh, and I love it. It, it just it does feel like the most thought out of them. 
Um, I love the 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 fluffy creature. I was just reading in um, Tom Savini's book, his uh, Grand Illusions book, how they did that, where they just had it was basically just a suit from the top up, some random guys just wearing them, and then they had a fake floor underneath the legs of Fluffy to make him look, you know, real short, which mm. is fun. And there's a great picture in here, and I'll send this to both of you afterwards of uh, of. Tom Savini holding up the body of the fluffy creature like he just got it back from the dry clean, like it was a suit he just got back from the dry clean. <laughs> it's really funny. It looks like his mom <laughs> made him take the picture before his prom or something. But, um, yeah, I, I love the creature and um, uh, some some great neon lighting. You know, I love that near the end uh, with what happens to Billy or Wilma. I don't I don't Will. What does she go Billy. by? His, Billy. Yeah, yeah. Billy. Yeah. Uh, Adrian Barbeau is just vile in this movie and her, her performance. And after coming off of the fog with her comforting, you know, radio voice, it's a it's a really rude awakening. Um, but uh, it shows that she's got some range. And I was very satisfied with uh, the way she was dispatched after giving that long, demeaning monologue and then getting snatched into the crate. That was awesome. Um <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's just very satisfying. You know, the problems that I had with the with the previous shorts are remedied in this one. I think it starts strong and it ends strong. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, Victor, go ahead. Uh, no, I, I just I agree. I agree with what Jackson just said. Yeah, it's it's got a great uh, twist ending. It's it's probably got the best twist ending that um, you know. I guess you you kind of see it coming maybe five minutes before the end, but um, many of the endings of the other segments uh, can be predicted long before <laughs> the story ends. Right. Um, which I guess is intentional. Like the you know the EC comics that those guys were emulating uh, or or doing an homage to in this in this movie are similar. Like you know they're they have telegraphed endings, uh, and that's kind of the fun is like you're you're waiting for the the other shoe to drop. Um, but uh, the the ending of the crate. I think is um, is pretty creative and it's uh, it's it's cool. Yeah, and and the cool thing is that um, piggybacking off what you said, that when Adrian Barbeau is by the crate, it takes a minute for Fluffy to pop out. And was I the only one? And Victor, you go you go first. Was I the only one like waiting for Creepy to pop out? I mean, Fluffy to pop out. I'm sorry, just like. Come on, get let's finish Billy off. No, uh, yeah, I was waiting too. That was done brilliantly. Um, where we were like, oh no, it's not going to happen. And then you know, Billy's going to unleash hell on, on this guy. Exactly. Exactly, Jackson. Yeah, yeah, I I was a little nervous for, and and we shouldn't be rooting for for homicide to take place, right? But I mean, right. come on, uh, <laughs> you're like he's gotten himself that he might as well just go through with it now, and and hopefully Fluffy pops out. I just wanted to note really quick that according to Tom Savini, Fluffy was inspired by uh, Rob Bottin's ape from the 1980 Canadian movie Tanya's Island. Mm -hmm. uh, so. <laughs> Make of that what you will. Um, I don't really see the. Yeah. I don't see the resemblance. I watched the trailer and uh, oh boy, I think I think the best thing you can say about Tanya's Island is that it inspired the crate creature and creep show. Because <laughs> uh, yikes! But uh, it's Rob Bottin, and I can see why uh, Savini would be inspired. He also cited uh, the howling werewolves as a major influence, and mm -hmm. you can kind of see that with their long protruding snouts. 
Um, but yeah, and I love, uh, we talked about the ending. I love how it's in the quarry and the water's all red as it's getting out of the, out of the crate. And I guess that's the blood coming out of the crate from all the bodies he had consumed. Right. That's, that's really wicked. And I, it sort of reminds me of, you know, I was, this is going to sound demeaning, but it kind of reminds me of a Goosebumps episode. You know, I, I would watch the adaptations of the books, uh, when they were on TV and uh, it kind of reminded me of that. You're gonna, you know, is Fluffy going to come for them? You know, what's he gonna do? I kind of want to see a sequel to, to this uh, this short where Fluffy goes on a revenge uh, revenge spree. But seeing as how we've lost one of the cast members, um, it wouldn't be the same. Mm. Yeah, we lost Hal Holbrook at yeah, the age of 95. Yeah, he 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 stuck around for for a good long time. You know, got some some more good work in there but um you know i i can't think of anyone that we could replace him with no i can't i can't either but and i don't know jackson in your research tom savini actually contacted rob botin right Ta- yeah talked talked on the phone and uh in his words they talked for hours about uh what, what are his? I, I don't want to misquote tom savini or else i'm afraid he'll come for me uh they they talked for hours about mechanics and fiberglass so uh yeah there you go i didn't know that that you could talk for hours about mechanics and fi- fiberglass but uh if you're talking about rob botine and, and tom savini i don't find it all that surprising mm-hmm. yeah and again right now a big thing on facebook is um if your parents want a million dollars what would they do with it and jackson you would send me to Tom Savini's school of makeup and effects right that next door exactly to George right. Romero's filmmaking Institute. That is exactly right. That is exactly what I would do. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And there's a great, if you go on YouTube, there's a great tour of Tom Savini's uh, school and all that other kind of stuff. And I know our buddy Greg Amortis is going to be on here in a couple of weeks had a bad, you know, interaction with Tom Savini. I saw that I mm. spent the day with Tom Savini at, uh, Camp Crystal Lake. I saw sometimes where he could be surly, but other times, I ninety percent of the time, I saw him be really nice. But I mean, that guy's got you know really bad arthritis, so I cut him some slack. So, um, the last segment is they're creeping on you with the great E.G. Marshall and a crapload of cockroaches, mm-hmm. two hundred and fifty thousand cockroaches used oh victor your what's your opinion oh man i i am not a proponent of bugs in the house um (laughs) so uh, there you know here up in the pacific northwest uh, occasionally we have spiders you know there there are tree spiders that live in washington um that make their way into homes and they are not small um, they're not, you know, they're not tarantulas or anything, but, uh, but they are like the size of, I don't know, um, a, a child's hand. Uh, and, uh, wow. they, they can be, uh, difficult to track down and, uh, kill. So, you know, I, my, my littlest assistant, um, here at the Strange High House is, um, Espresso, uh, who is a feline and, um, she enjoys, uh, helping me hunt those guys down uh, when they emerge. But uh, anyway, uh, I guess that's my way of saying this is the only segment that uh, kind of scared me or creep creeped me out for real. Mm-hmm. 
so I think that it does have a, a good dose of laconic humor in it, but it's it's also genuinely frightening and uh, grotesque. <laughs> so I think this is where those three themes kind of come together in the movie, and um, and that's why I was glad it was last. Uh, but um, but yeah, it's a it's a really interesting uh, it has interesting comments about racism uh about mm -hmm. uh, phobias uh yeah uh, brilliantly acted by eg marshall another pretty heavy hitter uh, that they got for this a uh, lot of great talent in this movie um and um yeah it's basically a one-man show with him and um uh, people through the peephole that he talks to but he's he's sort of sequestered in his <laughs> brightly yep. lit uh, apartment uh in i guess it's is it New York or Chicago? I forget. Um, but I think some... it's New York. Yeah, I think it's New York, but I may be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of those uh, major cities, and um, and uh, you know he he he's just really into controlling his environment, and he flips out when these little creatures uh, start appearing uh, because that's <laughs> that is something that happens. I hear often in New York. I've never lived in New York, but um, uh, cockroach appearance is a pretty common thing. And uh, yeah, it, uh, it he's a very unlikable character, and things go horribly, horribly wrong for him. Um, in uh, yeah, one of the most grotesque endings I guess I've ever seen. <laughs> so. Yes, absolutely, Jackson. What do you think? I love this one. I don't know why you don't like this, Dad. I love this this segment. Uh, E.G. Marshall is amazing. He's awful. He's you know he's racist. He's uh, he he tries to take over a company and then when the the former owner of the company kills himself and the widow blames him he mocks her he is just terrible and he's calling people off in their vacations to come and you know do his every whim and uh, you know but also at the same time nobody likes bugs so we can all sympathize with his his dis dislike of bugs and his dislike of germs especially in this uh this pandemic and uh, yeah, I don't know. This this short feels the most modern out of all of them. It's mm. I think it's because of its mm. almost dystopian setting and that that white apartment. It feels kind of like a Kubrick uh, thing, and uh, yeah, it just feels very modern. I mean, if you showed me this and I didn't know it was part of Creepshow, I wouldn't have I would have no idea as to when it was um, filmed because it, it just feels really timeless. And um, yeah, and it, it, I love the ending. There's some body horror elements to it. Um, and of course, you know, that, that, ugh, if you have uh, a phobia of bugs, do not watch this because they are just crawling <laughs> everywhere. And especially the part where the lights go out and they're just like every single time the lightning flashes, you can see more of them crawling on different parts of them. Ugh. Yeah. I, I don't even mind bugs that much. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't have a phobia of them, but this, this made me want to go out and commit a little bit of cockroach genocide. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't let me I don't hate this segment. Don't get me wrong. I just thought it was the weakest. I thought they should have ended with a crate. Does that make sense, Jackson? Sure. So so you're saying you're saying they're creeping up on you for, before the crate and then the crate's the big finisher. Yeah, right? I, I, I don't think it's weak. I, I do think it's a strong segment. Um, E.J. Marshall is great in it. And I do have a thing about bugs. Um my very first apartment on my own when I turned 18, which was in 1990, was in North Hollywood off of Lancashire Boulevard, just up the street from North Hollywood High. And it had cockroaches. And mm -hmm. it had, I, I recognized cockroaches from Creepshow. 
I didn't know what they were. <laughs> I be only because I'd seen creep shows. Like, oh, that's that's the stuff from creep show. So, um, yeah, I I don't care for cockroaches. I do have a bug thing. I don't like spiders either. So, um, but yeah, I. I, I think it's a strong segment. I just don't think it's the strongest segment. I think they should have ended on the strongest segment. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I get that. And th- I disagree. I think that this is a strong finisher. I think the crate is the best one, but uh, you need a little bit of a buffer be- before the ending because that that is the, the crate is the most narrative heavy, I think. And you need something that that'll just shock you a little bit and remind you that this is a, you know, it's a it's a horror movie, right? You know, I mean, I, I guess that that the crate is a horror movie, but just this little this little, you know, kick in the butt before you leave really helps. Mm, okay, Victor. What about you? Yeah, I I agree with Jackson on this one. I think that it should be the last segment um, because I, I but but uh, I do agree with your comments that the, the the crate is the strongest narrative of the bunch. But um, I think the uh, the ending where the bugs pop out. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. is that is the stick the landing ending that they were probably reminiscing about having throughout the making of this movie. And it's like, yeah, that's that's what we need. You know, we need something to just totally gross people out uh, before we, you know, bring it back to the the frame story and uh, and and roll credits. Uh, so I think that's probably why they did the way the way they did. And I do think it stands out amongst the segments as one of the most remarkable ones. Um, so I, I think that they got it right, but, uh, by the same token, I understand putting the crate last would have been great too. I I don't think I would have thought any less of this movie if they had done that. Um, and, uh, I, I love the crate too. So, um, yeah, there you go. All right. So, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't disagree with that. I can't disagree with what, uh, you're saying Jackson or you Victor. Um, so, this was, just FYI, uh, a horror movie that Roger Ebert gave a positive review to. Um, Roger Ebert, as I have said many times, Jackson, you can back me up on this, did not hate horror movies. He did not understand slasher movies, but he did um, appreciate horror movies. He gave this a positive review, as well as Dawn of the Dead and Scream, and we can go on and on. Um, it made money. Uh, eight million dollar budget and made 21. So if we go by the typical calculations at that time, it meant with marketing it cost 16, which means it made five million dollars mm-hmm. in box office. So, but all that being said, and you can comment on that if you want. I know Jackson, you'll want to talk about the score. Am I wrong? No, no, you're not. You're not wrong. And and the the score is, I you know I remember uh, when we did our. You, you might not remember this, but we did a little game where we did like a bonus oh, yeah. part on Patreon yep. where I played you horror scores, and this is one of them, the Creepshow theme. I actually think it's used to better effect in Creepshow too. They kind of use it more appropriately. Maybe they don't use it as very much in this movie. It's, it's um the score is is a little bit more subtle. I feel like except for the stingers when you get those those comic panel like green screen neon lights then it comes in you know a lot but for the most part it's a very like brooding movie it it, it doesn't over overuse the score and I, I i do appreciate that um but uh you know I, I i don't think anybody would disagree that um dawn of the dead and day of the dead are the best romero scores 
Oh, all right. So, all right. Victor, you used to work in this department. What do you think of the score of Creepshow? Yeah, uh, I like it. I know that it's a it's it's not one of my favorites um, with uh, with horror movies. I don't own the soundtrack, but uh, I've seen Creepshow enough times that I I know it. I know the theme. I yeah I agree with Jackson that it was used better in the second movie. Um, but uh, you know the existence of the Creepshow score I think um, was indirectly uh, made possible by John Carpenter in the way that. You know, Carpenter was sort of a one-man band with his uh, mm-hmm. synthesizers, and that was the approach that they took to Creepshow, which is <laughs> the inexpensive approach. <laughs> uh, right. But, you know, if you have the right talent, uh, you can still make a memorable score, and that was the, the you know, those types of minimalist electronic scores were in vogue uh, at the time, thanks to Carpenter. So... Uh, I think it totally works with the movie, and um, yeah, it's a good theme. And they've, I think, they've used it in all the iterations of Creepshow after this movie. So that tells you something about its staying power. All right, and that and that leads me into what I want to talk about next. But first, anything else we want to talk about Creepshow before we move on to just briefly comment on Creepshow two and three? Jackson, you first. Anything you want to talk about? What uh, any notes you have? Yeah, a couple things with the um, with the wraparound segment at the end, um, because we do get a little bit more. First of all, Tom Savini is the garbage man. It was awesome. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he's kind of the same in every movie. He's do you? In. I do you? I, okay, I, I will go ahead and say it. And I, like I said, I spent the day with Tom Savini. I like him. Right. I think he's an amazing makeup effects artist. I think he's a terrible actor. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I think he's a terrible actor. He's charming because it's Tom Savini. If it, if it was anybody else and he didn't have any other jobs, I'd be like, why'd you cast this guy out of all the people? But knowing that he did so much for this movie, I mean, I'm looking at like 40 stills right now from this uh, this makeup book. So he did so much. I think he deserves a, a part, you know, what? And they just had him in a small part talking about, you know, my kid loves these comic a- books. Even in From Dust Till Dawn, he's terrible. Oh, I'm you don't sorry. like him? Oh, what's his name? No. Sex Machine from yeah, From Dust Till Dawn? I, I just think he's terrible. Victor, am I wrong? You... No, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah, I no, I don't. I, I don't like his performances, but um, but I think that it may be because now I, I have never met Tom Savini, unlike you, but. Um, I I think that he has he's he's really cool looking guy like he's got a yeah. cool look, yeah. Um, and uh, I think that the weirdness in his performances come from him being cast in sort of non sort of uh, nebbishy roles that where you know he's supposed to be sort of an everyman but he doesn't look like an everyman like he seems intimidating and intense <laughs> so. I don't think he can reconcile his looks with the parts that he's been given. Uh, and, and that may be what, the disparity. So are, are you saying that he's got a bit of a Clint Eastwood, John Wayne kind of thing going on, that this is his persona is enough? Yeah, I, I think that maybe his filmmakers, like his directors, should have leaned into uh, his his look a little more. And that may have I'll may have sure. led to better performances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they kind they do in like Dawn of the Dead and, and From Dusk Till Dawn, I think, when he plays his biker types. I think he's better I in those than he is in this. Terrible in Dawn of the Dead. I think he's God. Okay. Dawn of the Dead. 
Well, and but hey, would would you be willing to plummet off of a, a mall balcony into a fountain? I, I don't think uh, you would. And Tom Savini was. But I mean, I I'm, <laughs> I I'm okay, just saying. Fair. Yeah, I I'm just saying. I just look. I I think the guy is an amazing makeup artist. I uh, absolutely amazing. I'm not saying and, and he's got a school like i said if if i won the lottery tomorrow i would send you immediately to his school i i think that highly of the guy i just don't think he's a great actor fair. that's all i'm saying that's fair and and he's never a leading man so i think you are among the majority when you say that well um, you know a I, movie shot on vhs in the 80s i haven't seen it i've only seen clips of it but mm. I've heard it's terrible. Um, Is that like how Quentin Quentin Tarantino acted in his uh, first, you know, like short films? Well, yeah, I I wouldn't cast Quentin Tarantino in anything other than Reservoir Dogs. No, but anyway, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, he's so good in Reservoir Dogs. What happened with Pulp Fiction? I I don't know. Am I you're with us on that, Victor? Yeah, yeah, it's it's too bad. We're not uh, it's not a Quentin Tarantino show. Uh, but yeah, I totally agree. I think that there's something that happened in between those two movies uh, where his performance is just really stands out as a sore thumb in, in Pulp Fiction. But yes, I uh, yeah. loved him in Reservoir Dogs. I absolutely agree. All right. So, Victor, anything else you want to talk about with Creepshow before we move on to just briefly talk about Creepshow two and three and three? I have not seen. Uh, yeah, just one final note about Savini. I, I think uh, that yeah, he he was in um, a a Netflix, I believe, TV series called Lock and Key, which is written by Joe Hill, who is oh, the wow. first. He's the little kid in Creepshow. So um, I think there's another uh, degree of separation there. Uh, but yeah, he makes an appearance in Lock and Key as a, a shop owner and. Um, uh, it's the same. It's the same effect, though. He's he's a shop. He's a really intense uh, looking shop owner, and um, he's got a group of followers in the town called the Savinis. Oh wow! <laughs> and they're really into makeup effects. So there you go. Um, wow. That's a, that's a little another connection there. Wow! I did not know that. So. Creepshow two, which I actually saw in the theaters um, when I was fifteen. I, I, I went to see it. Uh, George Romero did not direct it. So, Victor, your overall thoughts about Creepshow 2? Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's it's the start of the diminishing returns after Creepshow 1. I, I think it's a, it's a decent movie. You still had material written by Stephen King. Mm-hmm. I don't know if all of it is, but I know that The Raft, um, which yeah. is my favorite segment, is, is written by him. And it's in Skeleton Crew, his uh, short story collection. Um, and, um, yeah, I feel like, uh, oh yeah. One thing that I noticed about creep show too, reviewing it for this podcast is that the creep talks in it. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I don't think he ever talks in any of the other movies, which, um, is odd. Uh, but, uh, I, I can only assume it was a legal copyright that they may have ignored for the second movie, uh, where there was a clash with tales from the crypt. Um, but I don't know. Um, I think uh, it's it's pretty good. Like uh, I'd uh, I'd probably give Creepshow two a seven out of ten, and it's a it's an enjoyable mm-hmm. watch, uh, but not up to the the standard of the the original. Jackson, what about you? 
I agree completely. I think it's I think it's a pretty good sequel, not as good as the first one. Uh, first time I watched it, I gave it four stars out of five, but now I give it closer to a three point five out of five or a seven out of ten. Um, you know, I like two of the of the shorts. The raft is my favorite, and I like the one I like the one okay about the hit and run hitchhiker. Um, and I found it kind of weird that there were See, only three. See, that's my least favorite. I, really? I, I really I, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the hitchhiker one with Lois Childs, who yeah, people yeah. remember from Moonraker. I just wasn't a big sure. fan of it. I like it. I think mostly because of the acting. I, I like her performance. I like her in, her interactions with the gigolo at the beginning. Uh, I think that you know some of the dialogue is pretty good. I think my problem with uh, Old Chief Woodenhead, I think is the name of the first one, is mm-hmm. that two of the uh, Native American characters are played by white guys in brown makeup, which is kind of mm. weird. But yeah, uh, that's, that's bad. Yeah, product of the times, I guess. Yeah. But uh, I do I do like that that last short it's not as good it goes on a little long but i think the raft is great um and uh it's it's very much it's like something you would read in an old an old horror comic so i, I like think it fits perfectly Woodenhead, if only because i love george kennedy mm-hmm. and i love him in it i but i agree the raft is fantastic but we have to say there's not a lot of people to root for in the raft because the no. guy is the guy's a creeper yeah, yeah. Right. We got the we got the jock who's kind of a lunkhead, um, and but by, he says my favorite line though that which is um, uh, I feel the need the need for weed, <laughs> which is <laughs> such a Stephen King line. But uh, yeah, he's he's a lunkhead. Uh, maybe you should re- you know I started off rooting for uh, the kind of the more normal normal girl in the group, the one that seems like she's got her head on her shoulders more. But yeah. then she's immediately eaten by the smog creature. Um, so you know, not a lot of people to root that's, for. They... Yeah, that's an odd thing. And and, and right. Jackson, you and I have have talked about this a lot. We talked about this with climax. We talked about this with possessor. The the lack of an empathetic character. Victor, mm-hmm. you're the writer. I mean, do you feel the need to have an empathetic character or not? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think, like you said, um, the the empathetic character is is eaten. Um, which is, that's something that's typically found in gothic horror stories, you know, like Mm. taking something innocent or beautiful and destroying it um, to horrify the the reader. Um, But yeah, I would say, I know that, I know that a skeleton crew came out in the mid eighties, but I wouldn't be surprised if Stephen King wrote this story when he was very young and maybe just didn't publish it for uh, you know, quite a while, like after his first novels were published. Interesting. Uh, it, it seems like something a young writer would would write. Um, and, and I, I mean, I, I only say mm-hmm. that because I, I'm really not. It's one of my favorite stories in that book and in this movie. Um, but I'm only saying that because Stephen King is so renowned for the empathy and depth to his characters that um, the, the lack thereof in this segment is really uh, jarring. Interesting. Very interesting. Jackson, your thoughts? Yeah, it does. It does feel like an early work of his. And again, it's it's kind of like another one of those, you know, we're stuck in the situation. There's probably no way of getting out. Sort of like um, uh, the Tide one and uh, Gerald's game. It is kind of that same thing, but the characters aren't as interesting. Um, and, you know, you're kind of rooting for the the the. Um, 
the Shire guy, but then he turns out to be kind of rapey at the end. So you're like, oh, so there oh, really isn't anybody yeah. to root for. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it is it is kind of odd. It is kind of an odd short, but I love the idea of that like smog monster creeping up through the floorboards. You got to keep on the boards. You got to keep a watch out for it. And the the warning signs at the beginning, it's kind of like Jaws, where it's like there are warning signs and then something happens. You see the, the, the ducks or the geese being eaten by the smog when they're going out into the thing and they don't think much of it until it starts consuming them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and I like that idea that it's been out there for a while. Maybe other people have gone out to the raft and been eaten by it, and it's just been growing out there. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of, kind of cool, kind of ambiguous, because we never learn what caused that creature to exist. Um, we don't know what it is. We don't know where it comes from. Um, certainly not an oil slick, or maybe it is. Maybe it's an environmental message. I don't know. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's definitely the strongest segment. Um, I think it's also worth mentioning that I kind of like the the animated wraparound thing. The animation is kind of disturbing to me. It's a little weird, but I kind of like it. I mean, I, it's not like the most beautiful animation you'll ever see, but it, it feels appropriate. I don't know. It feels appropriate. Um, kind of reminds me of like a Sam Bakshi thing. Mm. But um, but yeah, um, I like Creepshow too. I think the segments are are weaker. But like I said, the score, uh, the use of the score is really strong. And I, I do like the puns that the creep uses. Uh, like I like the part where he's like, you're loyal to the gore. That's, I, I like that part quite a bit. <laughs> so, uh, and I think I'm, I'm going to start saying that more often. But I might get blue books. Anyways, um, yeah, so I like the talking creep. Uh, although he's not the traditional creep, he's got skin on this time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's an interesting little movie made five years after the first one, so it's a little bit distanced from the the source. But um, yeah, uh, it's it's a fun watch. Okay, all right. So, Victor, anything else on Creepshow Two? Yeah, no, I I think uh, we said it all. It's um, yeah. So uh, you are, I think, the only one who's seen Creepshow Three, mm. and we messaged back and forth about this. So. Lucky me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm pretty much, you know, suspecting you're telling our listeners, don't waste your time. Right. Um, yeah. I, I won't spend too much time on it, but uh, yeah, Creepshow 3 was sort of the the nadir or the lowest point in the franchise, uh, I would say. I'm happy to say that the TV series that came after is superior to um, the Creepshow 3 movie. But um, yeah, talking about years of distance, Creepshow 3 came out in 2007, so 20 years after Creepshow 2, Um, and it went straight to video. I saw it on HBO, I believe, Uh, and um, the segments range from distasteful to predictable, Uh, and... uh, I, I I guess the the, the main thing I, I want to say is it's not it's not horror at all. It's it's comedy with gore in it, mm. um, and except it's not funny. <laughs> either. Oh, oh, that's so, not yeah. good. I'd, oh uh, boy, yeah, rated a four four out of ten. Oh wow! All right, so Jackson, I don't think you've seen Creepshow three. I have not seen Creepshow 3. I was turned off from it by other reviews saying similar things. Doesn't seem like anybody was really happy with Creepshow 3. Um, but I gotta ask, have any of you seen... I know you said that, Victor, that you've seen the TV show. Did you watch the animated special on Shudder? Yes. 
I thought that was pretty good. And yeah. uh, that, that's got more stories by Stephen King and, and Joe Hill. So kind of a return to form. And I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I really like the TV series. Are we? Do you want to talk about that yet? Yeah, let's go for it. Go for it. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that it's it's pretty strong. I, I think it's a Shutter original. I know it's a Greg Nicotero um, dream project. And I think that he may have been on the set on Creepshow. I could swear I, I heard he him was. talking about that. Yep. He was. He was uh, an assistant to Tom Savini at the time. Yep. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. So this is a sort of him coming home and, and paying homage to the sources that inspired him, much like Stephen King and George Romero did when they made the original movie, hearkening back to EC Comics and Poe and Lovecraft right. before that. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I agree. I, I think that um, most of the segments are good. Um, some of them are average, but uh, it's always entertaining. Uh, and I really, I really like it. It's got a great bunch of writers that uh work for it yeah joe hill we we talked about before um yeah if you're if you're into the um by the silver water of lake champlain story that he wrote for creep show tv series uh you probably like his book uh 20th century ghosts uh i got mm. that last year and it's it's quite good uh it's short short uh ghost stories um oh wow and uh yeah joe lansdale did one of the segments uh, oh wow for the TV series. Yeah, the Happen Leonard guy. Um, yeah, Bruce Jones, who did all these uh, sort of EC callback comics in the, I guess it's the 80s, um, like Twisted mm -hmm. Tales and stuff like that. He wrote All Hallows Eve. Um, John Skip uh, did Times Are Rough and Musty Holler. <laughs> who, uh, he's a pretty famous editor and writer in the horror biz. And, um, and Dave Scow uh, probably wrote my favorite one, The Finger. Uh, who I, I believe he's the guy that wrote the script for The Crow. Um, and he's done tons and tons of horror oh, novels wow. and short stories. Yeah, so it's it's an all-star writing cast. Yeah, I've seen a couple of the episodes uh, from Creepshow. I've really, I really liked it from what I've seen. Jackson, what about you? I, I've only seen the animated special that came out, uh, when was that? Like, I think October or of... Um, of last year and uh you know one was written by stephen king one was written by joe hill so it was a really interesting father and son dynamic there mm -hmm. uh and while i did i did prefer the one written by stephen king you know there was still stuff to like about the joe hill one yeah uh, and uh yeah and I, it, it was i i remember the first uh segment in that animated special uh had the narration and main character played by Kiefer sutherland who did a great job right. so um yeah that's a really fun little thing and it really does feel like a return to form so uh happy to see that happy to, to see that creep show 3 wasn't the death of a very promising franchise <laughs> yeah and yeah i really liked a lot of the episodes i love that they brought back horror fans like david arquette and you know they had adrian barbeau in an episode and they had a wonderful episode about a dollhouse which i thought was fantastic mm -hmm. um so but going back to the original creep because we've we've gone through creep show one two and three but we didn't rate the original creep show victor what would you rate the original creep show from 1982 well you guys i think this is the best anthology horror movie ever made wow and i don't think it's perfect but it is far above they they 
they hit way above the weight class they needed to, um, and I would give it a nine out of ten. Wow. All right. So you would call that a buy? Yes, a buy for certain. All right. Jackson, what about you, buddy? I'm not far off. Uh, you know, I, I, this is only my first watch, so I'm not going to go ahead and on record and say this is my favorite horror anthology of all time. Uh, but I'm going to give it an 8.5 with room for improvement uh, upon future rewatches. And it is certainly among the best. I, I don't know if it's the best because I haven't seen that many. Um, but, uh, you know, this is this is probably the gold standard. Yeah, I agree. I'm right there with you. I'm at an 8.5. I call it a buy. I own it. The special features are really good. There's a good documentary called Just Desserts about the making of Creep Show that I would encourage people to check out. So, all right. Well, Victor, where can people find you online? And also, once again, please talk about your writing and where they can find it. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you ever want to locate uh, my links to my books or short stories that haven't yet been collected in books, uh, I would just encourage you to follow me on Twitter. Uh, and I am at Dime Store Caesar. So it's Dime Store and then Caesar, like the salad or the Roman emperor. Um, it's all one word. And uh, you, everything you can find to track me down and my work down is there. Absolutely. Uh, wonderful. Yeah. And I follow you on Twitter. So and you can find more of Jackson and I at fatherandsonwatchhorror.com. And we have a Twitter and Instagram page as well as a closed Facebook page. Jackson, where can they find you, buddy? You can find me on Twitter at Kane underscore Hero 12. Uh, that's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. Uh, also check me out on Letterboxd at Kane Hero. I'm going to be logging these, but not giving away my score. You have to listen to the podcast to hear that, you know, whenever I <laughs> review a, a movie that... Uh, that uh, we're doing here, but uh, I see a lot other movies. I see I see some movies for the first time that you'd be surprised that I haven't seen before. Um, so if you're interested in that, check that out on Letterboxd. And uh, yes, thank you so much. Absolutely, and I can be found at, at Pastor Matt uh, R on Twitter and Letterboxd. And we thank our Patreon supporters, and you can become one for as little as two dollars and fifty cents a month. It will help put my sidekick through film school, and so. Jackson, say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye, and remember, what would you do without us? <laughs> All right, <laughs> Billy. So, thanks for listening, and remember, folks, that the family that watches horror together slays together. See you next time. <laughs>